Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the Jack-Jack Memorial Reading Throne here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library within the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black. Weddings... And funerals, weddings and funerals is how we left the end of chapter nine, the penultimate chapter in Jude the Obscure and how appropriate that we should end in that way regarding my own life. Last time I mentioned a good friend of mine who had uh, had been very ill And since last we spoke, that friend has died. I uh, and my wife had uh, spent a good deal of time with him in his final days. And we are preparing for his funeral as I record this. I will be uh, speaking at that funeral and nothing has ever uh, made me feel more uh, I, I, I've never had a, re, a writing assignment that has put more pressure on me than this one. Uh, I've never given any kind of eulogy before. I, uh, I know it's supposed to be, I know what it's supposed to be because Elijah Cummings just died and I was listening to Bill Clinton and Barack Obama deliver their eulogies for him. And those were terrific, funny and sweet nostalgic and hopeful. And my friend's brother said, keep it to two minutes. I don't know that I can be funny, nostalgic, sweet, and hopeful in two minutes. I don't know that I could be those things in two hours. I don't know that I have that skill set. But today, 
when I'm done recording, the rest of the day is devoted to trying to write something comforting, warm, sweet, nostalgic, bittersweet, and hopeful that does not exceed two minutes in length. I mean, if I go three minutes, what are they going to do? You know what I mean? So it's been, uh, you know, it's been a week and we are dealing now in Jude the Obscure with Jude's own imminent passing, perhaps. And uh, the wedding part of it is, um, sadly, when my friend uh, was dying back in his home state, he wasn't from the wilds of Connecticut, although had spent the better part of the last uh, few decades here. Back in his home state, his niece was getting married like two days after he died. And so, you know, that cast a pall over those proceedings. I assume I wasn't there, but you know, it's just, it's just that thing. It's just that, that, that the interrelatedness of life, you know, Hakuna Matata, baby, the circle of life, you know what I'm talking about, how these things just come and go and ebb and flow. And we can neither control them nor tame them nor utterly surrender ourselves to them. We just kind of strap on the best that we can and go for the ride. And when we last left Sue Bridehead, that's precisely what she was doing with Phillotson. She was strapping on and going for the, we don't know that she strapped on in the literal sense of the word, but she was, uh, she was gritting her teeth and closing the door of Phillotson's boudoir as the scene slowly faded to dark and we were left with Widow Edlin's words. Weddings be funerals uh, these days, I believe. Uh, well, I'll, re- I'll reread that. And we were left with Widow Edlin's words. Weddings be funerals, I believe, nowadays. Fifty-five years ago come fall since my man and I married. Times have changed since then. So now we go on to the final chapter of Jude the Obscure. Chapter 10. Despite himself, Jude recovered somewhat and worked at his trade for several weeks. So here I am shoveling dirt on his grave and he recovered. So good, good, good news. Good news. The, the, the book is clearly going to end on an up note, and for that, I am grateful. After Christmas, however, he broke down again. Oh, so there we go. They, you know, they kind of come back and forth, and they, they revive, and then they flag, and they revive, and they flag. And in one paragraph, we've got Jude doing both of those things. He revived, then he flagged. With the money he had earned, he shifted his lodgings to a yet more central part of the town. But Arabella saw that he was not likely to do much work for a long while, and was cross enough at the turn affairs had taken since her remarriage to him. I'm hanged if you haven't been clever in this last stroke, she would say, to get a nurse for nothing by marrying me. Right. (laughs) 
because it was his idea. That manipulative, sly, and cunning Jude, knowing that he was beset with consumption. I know he doesn't have consumption, but in the 19th century, everything is consumption. Beset with consumption, pneumonia, what have you. He connived Arabella into getting him drunk and forcing him to marry her. Very clever, deep state shit, Jude. Very, very clever. Jude was absolutely indifferent to what she said and indeed often regarded her abuse in a humorous light, as I do. Sometimes his mood was more earnest, and as he lay, he often rambled on upon the defeat of his early aims. Every man has some little power in some one direction, he would say. I was never really stout enough for the stone trade, particularly the fixing. Moving the blocks always used to strain me, and standing the trying drafts in buildings before the windows are in always gave me colds, and I think that began the mischief inside." But I felt I could do one thing if I had the opportunity. I could accumulate ideas and impart them to others. I wonder if the founders had such as I in their minds, a fellow good for nothing else but for that particular thing. I hear that soon there's going to be a better chance for such helpless students as I was. There are schemes afoot for making the university less exclusive and extending its influence. I don't know much about it, and it is too late. Too late for me. Ah, and for how many worthier ones before me. So, times are a-changing there at Christminster or Oxford or however you want to say it. They're, they're talking about letting more, more folks in, you know, Cockney kids and, and kids from, uh, from, from, uh, from the Raj and all kinds of, uh, unfortunate souls who do not have the means or opportunities, uh, to get in on their own. What's the word I'm looking for? Recognizance. I don't know if that's the word. Like when you post your own bail, Is that, you know what I mean? On their own recognizance? I don't know. Um, But who are unable to afford the the school or unable to uh, uh, pull the right strings. But they're going to open it up because the whole country is opening up now as... Uh, as as industry has taken over and now a new middle class is burgeoning and these helicopter parents are going, well, what about my kid? Why can't my kid go to Oxford? You know, because that's how uh, uh, helicopter parents are. And when I say helicopter parents, I mean me and my wife. Why, why can't our kid go to Harvard? Why can't our kid go to Yale? Well, because his grades were shit. But, you know, whatever. How you keep a mumbling, said Arabella. I should have thought you'd have got over all that craze about books by this time, and so you would, if you'd a had any sense to begin with. You're as bad now as when we first married. On one occasion, while soliloquizing thus, he called her Sue unconsciously. I wish you'd mind who you're talking to said Arabella indignantly, calling a respectable married woman by the name of that. She remembered herself, and he did not catch the word. Well, we can only imagine what the word is, can't we? Hoor, or some such thing. Trollop, or some such terrible thing as that. 
But in the course of time, when she saw how things were going and how very little she had to fear from Sue's rivalry, she had a fit of generosity. I suppose you want to see your Sue, she said. Well, I don't mind her coming. You can have her here if you like. I don't wish to see her again. Oh, that's a change. (laughs) And don't tell her anything about me, that I'm ill or anything. She has chosen her course. Let her go. One day he received a surprise. Mrs. Edlin came to see him quite on her own account. Jude's wife, whose feelings as to where his affections were centered, had reached absolute indifference by this time, went out, leaving the old woman alone with Jude. He impulsively asked how Sue was, and then said bluntly, remembering what Sue had told him, I suppose they are still only husband and wife in name? Mrs. Edlin hesitated. Well, no, it's different now. She's begun it quite lately, all of her own free will. When did she begin? He asked quickly. (laughs) Like she's going in for, I don't know, like, like, like tuberculosis treatments or something, which I guess to Sue it is. When did, when did she begin her treatment? And the treatment is just, you know, it's just sleeping with her husband. That's the treatment. You know, that's, that's the terrible, terrible ordeal under which she is suffering. And for Sue, it is clearly an ordeal, although we have no idea why. You know, I have speculated in the past about it, but, you know, she just has no affection for the guy. And so, but, but the aversion that she has, I think is, 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 uh, is, is, is puzzling. And we'll never get a satisfactory answer from the text. Clearly, maybe if I were to do some digging on my own, And when I say digging, I just mean Googling, you know, what's Sue's fucking problem? Maybe then I would understand. But as it is right now, I don't. She has affection for him in the sense that she cares about Phillotson and thinks he's a good man. But she has no attraction to Phillotson. Maybe it's like sleeping with your brother or something, which is terrible. So or so I have heard. Or so I have heard. You guys ready for a break? I sure am. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. 
So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Back on Obscure. This is the last chapter, guys. So let's just let's just keep it going. Jude is talking to Widow Edlin about Sue's unsexy sex. When did she begin? He asked quickly. The night after you came. But as a punishment to her poor self. He didn't wish it, but she insisted. Sue, my Sue, you darling fool. This is almost more than I can endure, Mrs. Edland. Don't be frightened at my rambling. I've got to talk to myself lying here so many hours alone. She was once a woman whose intellect was to mine like a star to a benzoline lamp, who saw all my superstitions as cobwebs that she could brush away with a word. Then bitter affliction came to us, and her intellect broke, and she veered round to darkness. Strange difference of sex that time and circumstance, which enlarge the views of most men, narrow the views of women almost invariably. And now the ultimate horror has come, her giving herself like this to what she loathes, in her enslavement to forms she so sensitive, so shrinking, that the very wind seemed to blow on her with a touch of deference. So wait, I just want to go back for a second. Time and circumstance enlarge the views of most men, but narrow the views of women almost invariably. Now, why is Jude saying this and how does he know? What is his experience with most men and women in their almost invariable conditions? Jude, despite being a well-read man, is certainly not a worldly man, has no friends that we know of, you know, the occasional acquaintance there in the stoneyard or some such thing, but doesn't hang out with people. Even Phillotson has a friend, Gillingham, but... Uh, Jude, you know, he just goes about his business. He's not informed, I don't think, uh, about the doings of men and women apart from the women that he lives with and the man who he is. I don't know how we would have this kind of expansive view of the nature of men and women. So this seems like slightly out of character for Jude to say, but maybe not so out of character for Hardy to say. So he's Hardy, I think, is saying, speaking through Jude, men, time and circumstances enlarge the views of men. I want to think about whether I, well, first of all, do I agree with any blanket statement about the differences between men and women? Not really, no. But I would say in my own experience, in my own marriage, time and circumstance has enlarged the views of both of us. Because what happens is over time, and I think all of my, all of you, both of you will probably agree that, you know, all life can do ultimately is humble you. In the end, we, we cannot master it. We can only submit to it. 
And when we know that, when we learn that, and we learn it slowly and over time, it has the double effect of enlarging your view because you see life as something far more expansive than you and your petty concerns. But it also does narrow your view somewhat because it makes you appreciate the smallness of your own life and the good and small things within it. The cup of tea by your side, a good meal, falling asleep because you've taken a delicious Ambien, all of these things. It has the effect of kind of cluing you in to the seasons and the world beyond your front door, but it also draws you towards your hearth if you have one and towards the smallest embers that spark from your fire. So I disagree with Hardy that it enlarges the views of men and narrows the views of women. I think it does both to both. But, you know, Hardy and I, oh, we have our disagreements. But in the end, we may fight, but we make up, don't we? We really do make up. So now the ultimate horror has come. She's having sex with her husband. That is the ultimate horror. And she is so sensitive, so shrinking. The very wind seemed to blow on her with a touch of deference. Even the wind was gentle with Sue because game recognized game, right? And the wind coming across the spirit that is Sue, which is air itself, is like, okay, homie, I got you. I'm going to blow on you, but just a little bit. All right. And Sue's like, thanks, homie. I appreciate it. As for Sue and me, when we were at our own best long ago, when our minds were clear and our love of truth fearless, the time was not ripe for us. Our ideas were 50 years too soon to be any good to us, and so the resistance they met with brought reaction in her oh and so the resistance they met with brought reaction and in her and recklessness and ruin on me there this mrs edland is how i go on to myself continually as i lie here i must be boring you awfully not at all, my dear boy. I could hearken to ye all day. So, you know, I, I, I have said the same about this. I, I, you know, tens of episodes ago, I said they were born about 50 years too early or whatever, a century too early, whatever I said. But their ideas, these new kind of liberal ideas, ideas that Hardy clearly saw coming over the horizon or at least was pining for. They just weren't there yet. You know, this is written in 1895. Hardy is probably looking at the coming 20th century going, shit's going to be better than it is right now. And in some ways he was right. In some ways he was, of course, horribly wrong. But as the century changed and as uh, people started making noises, women in particular, in England, I imagine, for change as industrialization came 
and lives were upended and uprooted and people were flocking to cities and taking jobs and making wages. And as I say, this this middle class was kind of burbling up from the loamy British soil. Of course, of course, things had to change. This life that Hardy knew. And I don't know how old Hardy was when he wrote this. I could probably look it up. Uh, Let's see. Thomas Hardy. Okay. So he's born in 18. Oh, no. He he marries in 1839. So he was probably born uh, in 1819. Wait a minute. How could this be? Something's wrong. Something's very wrong. Wait, what? Oh, 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 okay, I got it. Tom, uh, so I, I got confused. Thomas Hardy, builder and mason. So his father, this is from Hardy's Life and Works, a chronology, which comes in this Penguin Classics edition of Thomas Hardy. So Thomas Hardy, his father, marries. Uh, and his father was a mason, Jemima Hand, cook and servant maid. In 1839, their eldest son, Thomas, is born in 1840. So he would have been in his mid-50s when he wrote this book. And so he would have seen exactly the time that widow Edlin was talking about. That, that Those were his formative years. When Edlin was marrying, that's when Hardy was kind of growing up. And so Hardy would have this sort of warm nostalgia for, for, for his own childhood, the way people do, I imagine, uh, some people anyway, where they look back at their own youths as being more sort of festive and carefree than the current times when worries and woes weigh on us. Now, whether or not the times, in fact, were any different, it's hard to say because childhood itself is so uncomplicated in many ways that we tend to think that all of that time was uncomplicated when, in fact, it was probably just as problematic as your middle age days. So Hardy is looking back on the last 50 years and 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 seeing how times have changed and projecting now ahead 50 years and seeing that century and how things have changed halfway into it and will change halfway hence and he's seeing better things so it's funny because hardy himself seems so dour and cynical about the state of life and the strictures of his own times. And so you think of him as this kind of real sourpuss. Oh, Tom, why are you such a sourpuss? Hey, Shakespeare, why are you such a sourpuss? But in this book, in a weird way, there is um, a kind of optimism, an unexpected undercurrent of optimism, where he's saying shit's bad now, and I'm not going to live to see it, but one day everything's going to get better. He says, I must be boring you awfully. Not at all, my dear boy. I could hearken to you all day. As Jude reflected more and more on her news and grew more restless, he began in his mental agony to use terribly profane language about social conventions, which started a fit of coughing. Presently, there came a knock at the door downstairs. Well, we've never heard Jude be profane before. And um, I'll get a little morbid now. I think it's interesting. As my friend was entering his last couple of days, his brother, as I had mentioned before, had been driving back and forth from uh, his home state to take care of him. And 
his brother worked in healthcare and was familiar with patients of all kinds. And my friend began growing agitated and angry and profane in his own way, which is the normal way, you know, just saying profane shit. And my friend, my friend's brother said that that is typical, the state of agitation, the state of anger sometimes during the kind of last phase of life that this, that this was common. And so maybe Hardy knows a little bit about this. So Jude is being profane. There came a knock at the door downstairs. As nobody answered it, Mrs. Edlin herself went down. The visitor said blandly, the doctor. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Look, the lanky form was that of physician Vilbert. Remember, I was struggling to remember his name uh, last episode, who had been called in by Arabella. How is my patient at present? asked the physician. Oh, bad. Very bad. Poor chap, he got excited and do blaspheme terribly since I let out some gossip by accident. The more to my blame. But there you must excuse a man in suffering for what he says, and I hope God will forgive him. I'll go up and see him. Mrs. Folly at home? She's not in at present, but she'll be here soon. Vilbert went. But though Jude had hitherto taken the medicines of that skillful practitioner with the greatest indifference whenever poured down his throat by Arabella, he was now so brought to bay by events that he vented his opinion of Vilbert in the physician's face, and so forcibly... (laughs) And with such striking epithets that Vilbert soon scurried downstairs again. At the door he met Arabella, Mrs. Edlin having left. Arabella inquired how he thought her husband was now, and seeing that the doctor looked ruffled, asked him to take something. He assented. I'll bring it to you here in the passage, she said. There's nobody but me about the house today. She brought him a bottle and a glass, and he drank. Arabella began shaking with suppressed laughter. What is this, my dear? he asked, smacking his lips. Oh, a drop of wine and something in it. Laughing again, she said, I poured your own love filter into it that you sold me at the agricultural show. Don't you remember? I do, I do, clever woman, but you must be prepared for the consequences. Putting his arm around her shoulders, he kissed her there and then. Don't, don't, she whispered, laughing good-humoredly. My man will hear. She left him out of the house, and as she went back, she said to herself, Well, weak women must provide for a rainy day, and if my poor fellow upstairs do go off, as I suppose he will soon, it's well to keep chances open, and I can't pick and choose now as I could when I was younger, and one must take the old if one can't get the young. And of chapter 10, I was wrong. There is another chapter. That was the penultimate chapter. Chapter 11 
is the final and ultimate chapter. We will finish it next episode, episode 75. Let's take a quick break and then I will have some final thoughts. And we're back. So, Arabella giving herself a little, uh, what do you want to call it? A little escape hatch from Jude. She bought that love potion all those years ago and it had just been sitting in her cabinet collecting dust. She knew not what to do with it. And then when Vilbert shows up, she sees her opportunity. She puts a couple of drops in and Vilbert smacks his lips, says, that was delicious. What was it? And Arabella says, your future, and laughs and laughs and laughs. And then as Vilbert exits, she turns into Satan himself and laughs, steam arising from her eyeballs and laughs and her pitchfork appears in her hand and she strikes the ground and thunder explodes. If she can't have the young, she'll take the old. So she'll take Vilbert, Jude, not even dead. And she is already planning her next chapter. Well, there is only one chapter to go, of course, and we will get to it presently. But now I have delayed my own writing long enough. I am in need of a eulogy, something sweet and funny and nostalgic and comforting and hopeful in two minutes in length. (sighs) I shall do my best. And that's all any of us can do, right? As, uh, as life presses down on us and we see the world for its expansiveness and we see it for the minuscule lives that we have and we comfort ourselves by our tiny fires. So I will do. So until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. To subscribe and get more information, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts and you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. <laughs>